Well, I'll remind you, I said it in the announcements, that we are taking a break from our paragraph-by-paragraph um, paragraph study of Matthew, working through Matthew, um, to do a series on the family. And we do this every so often. Um, you know, we did one at the beginning of the year, and we do one at the end of the year, just to our, our normal diet is working through the scriptures verse by verse um, to see what the Lord has for us there. But then sometimes there are t- key topics that we want to cover that, um, uh, that we need to take a break for. And so the elders have uh, thought that the talking about the family is one of those times. And so that's why we want this series. That's why we want to do this series. It's really to help equip the families in our congregation uh, at all levels. Uh, maybe you're a younger family. Um, maybe you're an older family. Maybe you're um, looking at starting a family. Whatever situation in life, uh, God's plan for the family, even as we saw last week, is the foundational building block of the world and society and what his plan and purpose is. He's been working through the family since the Old Testament. And so we want to take some time to make sure and to try to give you biblical principles for what does God have to say about the family. And especially that's important as we live in our culture, in our time, in our place where the family is devalued, it's degraded, it is under attack on multiple levels, to then live by God's grace and only by God's grace um, towards his design for the family to stand out as salt and light in the world as a huge, huge conversation starter for the gospel. And what we're, the way we're starting this series is we're, we're taking the time to walk through from Genesis to Revelation and just to ask that question, well, what has God said about the family through the scriptures? Uh, I find it always helpful in, in dealing with a theme, a topic. Well, what, what's the trajectory? What's going on? Uh, not just all the verses, but where, what's the story? What's the story of the family through the scriptures. And so we started with that last week. We started with the foundation. Anytime you do this, everything kind of explodes out of Genesis 1 through 3. Everything kind of explodes out of Genesis 1 through 3. That's the foundation of what God is doing in the world. And so last week we started with the family and creation. We started the, with family and creation. And we drew some conclusions from that. I'll just remind you of a few of the conclusions we looked at from God's foundational principles for the family. A foundational family unit is the marriage of one man and one woman. Uh, They're one flesh and family, even apart from offspring. You can see that in Genesis 2, when God brings Adam and Eve together, and they become one flesh. They are one a man and a woman coming together, one man, one woman coming together in marriage is a new family, a new unit in God's eyes, and God is witness to that event. But not only so, uh, we can see in Genesis 1, through 28, that God designed offspring, children, to be part of that family unit. Uh, we talked about last week in Genesis 1, through 28, the fundamental role of mankind is to exercise a stewardship rule and dominion over the earth in such a way that it brings God glory and honor in all that we do. And part of that is... Husbands leading their wives, um, and then leading the parents leading their children in such a way that they can live as a family unit, working in all their different personalities uh, and how God has made them, but working together as a family for 
God's glory in the world. That's the fundamental task of mankind, and it wasn't just given to Adam, although it was uh, spoken to him initially, it was given to the whole family to work together for that. And even how God has designed man and woman and, uh, as image bearers, part of that is to reflect the unity and diversity that is in God himself, the divine family, the family from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. God has designed and given diversity in humanity. Man and women are different, and they have different roles. There's diversity there. There's diversity in the types of children that come from that union, and yet that unity in the family and the diversity in the family working together for God's glory even reflects God himself and his diversity and unity within himself as the Trinity. And really, in all of what we said, at least for the family and creation, God's design for the family is central what it means to be human and to honor God. That doesn't mean that, um, obviously, we know, and we'll talk about as we walk through the story, the story, there's difficulties with the family, there's difficulties coming from the fall, but for most people that God has designed in the world and how he wants them to live, they're going to be part of a family. They're going to produce a family. They're going to become a new family, and it's part of what it means to be human and to honor God with our lives. And that's from the creation. But then we have the family in the fall. And we saw that the really the subversion of the family order the husband leading the wife, the wife being a complimentary helpmate, the subversion of that family order resulted in the fall. It resulted in the fall. And as we see that the, the results of the fall, the fall results in sinful relationships and dysfunction in the family. That might be quite obvious to you, but we can already see it in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, Adam, in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he's praising his wife, he's loving his wife as he ought to do. And then, by after, right after the fall, what is he doing? The woman you gave to be with me, right? There's dysfunction, there's disunity, because not only did the subversion of the family order result in the fall, but then the results of the fall create and amplify that dysfunction within the family. And yet, even in the midst of that, and we spent a great deal of time talking about this last week, God still, even after the fall, reaffirms the family order and the family purposes from creation. It is still uh, the way he is working in the world. And even specifically with that promise, that first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, that the male offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and restore things to the way they ought to be, that is bound up with the family, isn't it? A male offspring of the woman to destroy the head of the serpent, that's bound up with the family. And so that's what we looked at last week. We looked at the family and creation. We looked at the family in the fall. Well, now we get to move a little faster, right? Because once we got the foundation in place, now we're in a good spot to see, well, how does this explode out into the rest of the storyline of Scripture? And so the next thing that we come to is the family and Israel. The family and Israel. And of course, as you walk through from, say, we left off really at Genesis 4, uh, the first, the first bro um, brothers, one, the older brother, the firstborn, murdered his, his brother. We see the family dysfunction there, and you can trace that even more as we see in chapter 4 from Cain's line, the first polygamist distorting marriage. You can see 
the, the, the rampant evil and wickedness in Genesis. You can see the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 where, uh, oh yeah, we have a united mankind and we have a united family, but it's going against God. It's not for God's glory and honor, it's for man's glory and honor. All the families of the world are living for themselves. And then God disperses. He disperses the families, these clans, from the Tower of Babel with different languages over the surface of the earth, which leads us right into chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we see how the family is still central to God's plan. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth, or literally the clans of the ground that were just dispersed in Genesis 11, shall be blessed. And there we get a key turning point in the story because, yes, God has designed the family from creation in a particular way, but now what God is doing, we've seen the rebellion of all the families in chapter 11. Well, how is God going to bring things back? Well, he's going to choose one family. He's going to choose the family of Abram, later Abraham, to work and be a people, be a family, be a nation in such a way that what? You see it happen at the end of chapter, uh, verse 3, that the fate of all the families of the ground are welded to the fate of this family. The fate of all the clans of the ground are welded to this family. So there's not only blessing for this family, it's not only that God is working through this family, and this is the family that he's choosing to bring the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Remember we said that that's what's driving all the genealogies in Genesis, and it's going to be uh, preeminent also in the story of Abraham and then Israel. There's still the search for that male seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 that's going to crush the head of the serpent. But it's not just about this family. It's about all the families of the world. And the promises to this family, the blessings to this family are ultimately to get passed on to the families of the world, to restore things the way they ought to be. And we see how this unfolds. Of course, you're familiar with the story of Abraham, but as we walk through this, we can see Abraham and Sarah first needing to have an offspring. They're barren, and Sarah's barren, and then God provides. They try to connive and produce their own offspring through surrogacy, and it doesn't work. It's not God's plan. And what does God do? He brings his own offspring, his own plan through Isaac, chapter 17. We see the promises are going to go through Isaac, the line of the seed, the offspring of the male offspring of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent is going to come through Isaac. And in connection with all of that and the promises of Isaac happening in Genesis 18, we get this, this statement in Genesis 18, 16 and following about what Abraham is supposed to do with his family. Genesis 18, 16 says this, then the men, so these remember these are the they're angelic visitors with some sort of evidently a theophany where God is manifesting himself in a physical way. 
But anyway, he had, these three visitors, they come, and then the promise of, you know, Isaac's going to be born within the year. And then right after this, God's going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this intervening kind of section, we get this, Genesis 18, 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations shall be blessed in him. See, see the reiteration of that promise from Genesis 12 reiterated here. But notice what God does next. For I have chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Do you see how that works? God's going to work through Abraham. He's going to work through this family. But, and God's going to do that no matter what. He's going to work through this family. But what is the family supposed to do? What is Abraham supposed to do? He's supposed to train his household. He's supposed to train his children in the way of Yahweh, to do righteousness and justice. And to what end? Such that as the family obeys God and his way, God would bless them such that they could then be that blessing to all the clans of the ground. Remember, the fate of all the families of the ground hinges on this family, and what is this family supposed to do? Train the next generation to keep God's way so that those blessings could come not only to that family, but then to all the families of the ground. This is critical, and it's crucial. Thinking about it this way, remember how we said that God chose, and in a sense, adopted Adam as his son by creation? And, and what is, who are Adam and Eve supposed to be? They're supposed to be image bearers. They're supposed to be God's representatives, God's ambassador kings on the earth, kings and priests for God's honor and glory. And we said, well, the expectation is they're going to have kids. And we said, yeah, but they're, as they're going to have kids, they're going to have to train them to know what does it mean to be God's image bearers, to honor and glorify God with their lives and with their family. Well, what's implicit with Adam now becomes explicit with Abraham. The Edenic restoration is coming through the family of Abraham to all the families of the world, and the family is to perpetuate. They're to perpetuate following Yahweh. The kind of family training implicit in the Adamic covenant is now mandated in the Abrahamic covenant. This is what the family is to do. But it's completely in line with what God had already called Adam and his family to do. So there's to be this training for justice, for righteousness. They're to keep God's standard. And then you start reading the rest of Genesis, and you look at Abraham's family. And it's a mess. I mean, if, you, if you're honest when you read Genesis, it's a mess. The family dynamic in Genesis, uh, in, in, with Abraham's family is, uh, uh, you've already got Ishmael and that problem. But then you go over to Jacob and Esau, 
And there's parental favoritism with Esau and with Jacob. And there's strife. And there's one brother wants to kill the other brother again. We've seen that before, and it happens again. And then it happens again with Jacob and his 12 sons. There's polygamy there, um, and there's all sorts of messiness. And then Jacob favors Joseph over his brothers, which makes his brothers jealous, which make them want to kill him, and they sell him into slavery. And it's a mess. It's an absolute disaster. It's such to the point where you're wondering, hey, is that kind of training that Abraham was mandated to do and to pass on through his sons, is that actually happening? doesn't seem like it. Maybe some of it is. But here's the thing, that even through the messiness, even through the dysfunction coming from the fall, coming from sin, we saw that last week, and even through Abraham's family, God is still working through the family. He's still working through the family. This is his plan. This is his vehicle and what he's going to do. So then you fast forward. You fast forward. You, Genesis ends, and remember how Joseph ends, uh, kind of effectively ends Genesis, and he kind of says, what well, you meant evil for me. Remember those brothers selling him into slavery in Egypt, trying to get rid of him out of jealousy. What does he say at the end? What God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So even through the twistedness, even through the dysfunction of the family, God is still working by grace to bring about his plan the male offspring, the woman, the promises are still going through Israel to eventually bless all the families of the world. So we fast forward a little bit, and we fast forward to the Exodus. We fast forward to the Exodus and Abraham's family, and they're in slavery, and they're crying out to God. And because of what God had promised to Abraham, God says, I'm going to rescue Israel. And not only is he rescuing Israel, but you get a glimpse into how God views Israel in the places like Exodus 4, through 23, where he says, Israel is my firstborn son, which is language that's reminiscent of how God viewed Adam. Adam is my stewardship king. He's my representative to, for my glory in all, the, in all the world. Well, now effectively that's gotten passed off to a whole nation where the whole nation of Israel is God's firstborn son. They're God's representative nation to the world. And even in Exodus 19, after God pulls them out of slavery in Egypt, as they're at Mount Sinai, he's going to say that you're going to be a kingdom of priests, my treasured possession. But that was already set up for with Abraham and saying, here's the family through which all the fate of the families of the world is tied with. So how does Israel, as now a nation, it becomes a nation at Mount Sinai, well, what's the story of the family going through the nation of Israel? Well, one of the things we can see as we walk through, and I'm just going to hit a few highlights uh, through the rest of the Old Testament, one of the things that we can see with the nation of Israel is God has rescued them. He creates a covenant with them, the Israelite covenant at Mount Sinai. One of the things that we can see through the rest of the history of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel is that marriage, which is the core, if you're married, you're a family, if you're married, you're a family, even apart from offspring, marriage as the core of the family is still held very, very high. Still held very, very high. Now, you see plenty of examples where it's not being held very high, but the standard, the standard, God's standard, still values it, still blesses it, and it's held very, very high. Primary example is the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is all about celebration of married love. And if you read Song of Solomon, you're like, wow, there's all this, this imagery with like plants and fruit and all, man, it's like they're in a garden or something. 
Well, that's intentional because it's evoking the Garden of Eden to say that some of the bliss of marriage that was in the Garden of Eden and that was designed to be in the Garden of Eden, it's still there. It's still marriage is good, even in a fallen world, and it can still be a joy, it can still be a blessing within God's plan, even in a fallen world. Or you can look at a book like Proverbs. Proverbs, with its, um, it guards marriage by warning against adultery, but it also celebrates marriage and the marital relationship, the companionship, the joy in places like Proverbs 5 or uh, um, elsewhere in Proverbs 18.22 or Proverbs 19.14, saying a, a wife, a good wife, is from God. It's a, uh, she is a gift from God to her husband. Or Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. We know that passage, the excellent wife. But what is it talking about? It's talking about a celebration of here's, here's, here's God's standard. It's still the same standard from creation. The husband is supposed to lead. The wife is supposed to come alongside as a helpmeet. The husband's supposed to love his wife and cherish his wife in that. And it's still held very, very high. All the way through Malachi. So the exile happens, Israel goes into exile, they come back, and they're still having issues, but in Malachi, you still see, to turn to Malachi briefly, Malachi 2, they come back from exile, they're still struggling with many issues, but one of the issues that God brings up through his prophet Malachi is to say, let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about marriage. In Malachi 2.13, we read this. And the second thing you do, you cover Yahweh's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So God's not accepting our offerings. What's the deal? Because Yahweh was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That is the view of marriage in the scriptures. Companionship, yes, but more than that, a covenantal relationship. Just as God was, has picked, God throughout the Old Testament scriptures and even into the New Testament, he always pictures his covenant relationship with his people with the marriage relationship. So God values marriage very, very highly. In fact, he says here, when that covenant's created, I'm witness. I'm the witness between you and the wife of your youth. So I care when that marriage relationship is violated, when it's uh, held in faithful, uh, faithlessness. But you also see here the glimpse of what it's supposed to be. It is supposed to be a covenant relationship. There's supposed to be intimacy and closeness and companionship through that. And when that's not happening, God says, I'm the witness. I'm the witness of your marriage. And he goes on. This is Malachi speaking. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says Yahweh of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God cares about marriage, and he still holds that standard high. The creation order of marriage in the family is still held high, the core of that being marriage, and God values marriage. 
Okay, so God still values marriage. He still holds that picture of the husband being a loving, good, beneficial um, um, leader in his home, and the wife coming alongside as a, as a blessing and a helpmate, and there can be companionship and joy and intimacy, even in a fallen world, that's still held high. What about the rest of the family? What about the offspring? What about the children? Well, in God's plan for Israel, that is central and core to even how God is working through Israel. Go back to Deuteronomy 6, which is what Andre read for us this morning. But Deuteronomy is, is as Israel is planning to go into the promised land, and God's reiterating a lot of his instruction for his people. Okay, what does it look like to live under me in covenant in the land? And we see a really core, concise, summary snapshot of what that's supposed to look like in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Let's read it again. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. So first and foremost, Israel, you have to understand God, there's only one God and you're, you're related to him. He is your one God. But what flows out of that, what flows out of that is verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So you recognize who God is and what he has done in rescuing you as a people, as the one true God. And then the response is love, love for God. And then what? What's the response if you're actually loving God with all of who you are? Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. So, okay, um, we see who God is. He's the one true God. That should motivate my love for him. And then out of love for him, I'm to obey. That's always the trajectory in Scripture. You don't ne scripture never lays out, you obey God so that, he, um, so that he loves you or that you have a relationship with him. No, that's legalism. But uh, if you love God because of what he has done for you, then you will obey. It's the exact opposite relationship. Because you love God, you will obey and you'll obey his standard, his words, his instruction, the way of Yahweh to do justice and righteousness like God talked to Abraham back in chapter 18. And then what? What are you supposed to do? Verse 7, you shall teach them the commandments, God's standard, God's instruction, God's law, diligently to your children. And you'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, if you as an individual Israelite, as you uh, who knows the one true God, and you love him with all of who you are, and those words, you should first breathe in those words, uh, have them be upon your heart, impressed upon your heart, and then what? They should permeate your whole life, but especially you need to pass them on to the next generation so that what? They know God so that they know God. And what's interesting is if you skip down to verse 20, you can actually see an example of this playing itself out. You can actually see an example of this playing itself, itself out. What does it look like to speak of these things to your children? Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? 
So the idea is that, you know, the father's teaching the son and he's saying, okay, here's the rules that God has given us. Here's the standard that God has given us. Here's the instruction that God has given us that we keep because we love him. And the son's asking, hey, what about those? Why do we have all these rules? Why do we have all these things? And then the father goes on, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed us showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might give, bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he, uh, he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. In other words, what is the father saying? God brought us out by grace. When you think about the rescue from Exodus, from, from the slavery in Egypt, you can't just say, oh yeah, God kind of happened to do that. No, it was by grace. He didn't have to do that, but he did because of the promise that he gave to Abraham. He rescued them out by grace. In response to that grace, God gives us statutes to obey we obey them because we love him and because God wants our good through these things. So it's a very key snapshot picture of the sort of training that God has in mind. Not only is it supposed to be on your heart, but you're to pass it on to the next generation. The same principles are articulated in Psalm 78. Turn to Psalm 78. We actually looked at the psalm not that long ago because um, it was quoted in Matthew, in Matthew 13. So we looked at it a little bit then, but Psalm 78 articulates the same principle that's built in to the law and to the instruction and to who Israel is supposed to be with fathers training sons. Psalm 78, a mass skill of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation, what? The glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God." And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. In other words, the principle is always this, that, uh, you're, the, that God has built in is to teach the next generation, here's who God is. Notice what it starts with here. It doesn't start with the laws. It starts with God's great acts with his deeds, with how majestic and awesome God is. And then, yes, it flows into the law, the statutes, the things that uh, are God's standard. But for what end? To what end? Verse 7, so that. Why are you doing all this teaching? So that they should set their hope in God, their confidence in God, their faith in God, that they might fear God. That's all kind of synonymous language. 
this is built into what Israel is supposed to do as a nation, but really it's the same thing that Abraham was supposed to do, and really it's the same thing that Adam was supposed to do. It's consistent. The fathers are supposed to train their sons. And you even get a practical manual. You even get a practical manual for this in the scriptures. It's called Proverbs. It's called Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Jerusalem. What is Proverbs all about? Well, he tells you, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, which sounds an awful lot like what God told Abraham to do, right? Train your children in the way of Yahweh so that they could do righteousness and justice. Same kind of thing, same kind of standard we're talking about. But notice verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Okay, so part of what Proverbs is supposed to do is to help train children who are simple and youth who need discretion. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh, which is another way of saying you're in a right relationship with God, and you're reverencing him as you ought to, and loving him with all of your being. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then notice how it starts. So that's kind of the prologue, and Solomon's explaining, here's what this is all about. But look at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And really, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are where you see the father seeking to instruct his son, saying, hey, listen up, here's some principles, don't do this, do do this, I'm trying to give you wisdom. But notice even in the start of that, in verses 8 and 9, what's going on? You've got both parents involved. Yes, the father is the primary in training the children, in giving instruction, but also what? Uh, The mom's involved too. The mom's involved too. In fact, if you were to fast forward to the end of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, 26, it talks, the excellent wife, it talks about how the teaching of kindness is on the mom's tongue. So what are the parents supposed to do? The parents are supposed to pass on their faith to the next generation so that they might fear the Lord. And all those aspects, in keeping the statutes and the laws, but also in just wise living. How do you live in the fear of God and wise living in a God-honoring way in the world? But it's the same exact thing from Adam to Abraham to Joe Israelite. It's the same thing for the family. What about the children in turn, right? So we've talking about the, the parents to the kids. What are the kids supposed to do? What are the offspring supposed to do? Well, you know this, Deuteronomy 5.16 or Exodus 20, either one. Honor your father and your mother as Yahweh your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you on the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. See, this is just built in. This is part and parcel of what it means to be uh, the people of God in and how he's designed Israel to function. What's supposed to happen? 
Well, you've got Israel. They're supposed to obey God's laws and love them, but then they're supposed to pass them on to their children. Why? So that God is going to bless this nation. And then what? Go back to Genesis 12. This nation is going to be blessed to what? To bless all the families of the grounds. But what does it all boil down to? It all boils down to is one generation, is one family passing on to the next generation? If it is, that's part of the vehicle that's going to have the whole nation of Israel doing what it's supposed to be doing and honoring God with their lives, which is then going to what? Spread to all the nations of the world. It's part of God's vehicle. And so failure, if you reverse that, failure to train the next generation leads to cycles of failure to keep God's covenant. And you can see this. It's laced throughout all of the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Judges. Turn to Judges. So we know Joshua, he goes in, and that generation, the second generation coming out of Egypt, um, that uh, they're coming out of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and they are they, by and large, that generation does it right. They obey God, they love God, and they're following God, that first generation, that generation uh, um, with Joshua. And then we look at, well, what about the next generation? Good Judges 2.6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh, which is language that says they don't, there's not a salvation relationship between them and God at all, or the work that he had done for Israel. So what happened? So you got a generation that's following God, evidently, and then the next generation doesn't. Now, there's multiple reasons for that, but at least one big reason has to be they failed to pass it on. They failed to pass it on. So this generation's knowing and loving God. They didn't pass it on to the next generation, so the next generation doesn't know God, doesn't fear God, is not going to obey God's commands. And then what? We see it in Judges, cycles of punishment. Then God, uh, there's a, a sort of repentance on the part of the nation. God brings them back. But there's just this cycle, and it ends up being a downward spiral into depravity as a nation. And it, you, you see this throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't just happen in Judges, but once David becomes king, once David becomes king, remember God gives a promise to David and says, okay, here's the line. Here's the line through whom the, the, the seed-crushing or the serpent-crushing seed of the woman is going to come. It's going to come through the Davidic line and the Davidic kingship, and this kingship is going to last forever. So God furthers his promises through the kings. But then you read the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, and what's happened? Well, we got a good king, well, at least in the, you know, from David's offspring. 
nation of Israel, the, those kings are never good, right? They're always idolatrous. But then the southern kingdom of Judah, with Nathan's or with uh, uh, with uh, uh, David's offspring on the throne, you've got a good king, and then a bad king, and maybe two good kings, and then a bad king, and then three good bad kings. Right? Why? Because at least part of it is the failure of one generation, one king who may have been faithful to the Lord to pass on to the next generation in the Davidic line. And the problem is, is now the fate of the nation is welded to the fate of the kingship. So the kingship's good, the nation's doing okay, the kingship's bad, everything is bad. And again, we get a spiral down, that's where we get the exile, and then they come back. But what does a lot of Israel's cycles of failure and covenant unfaithfulness come back down to? Did this generation, did this family pass on to the next generation the faith? Did they do that? Now, there's a caveat to that that I'll give in a second because, well, we can even give it now because even as they're about to go into exile, even as they're about to go into exile, God explains some of this problem. Turn to Jeremiah. We see, okay, there's a failure here of one generation, a failure of one generation to pass on to the next. But... There's a little bit more to it. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, as God says, all right, uh, you've broken this covenant. Uh, there's failure with the Israelite covenant that happened at Mount Sinai. Uh, what, what, what's God gonna, they're going into exile because of this. What's going to happen? Well, God gives part of his plan in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 with the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What does that say about the failure of the nation? Well, the problem is, is you've got this family, which God has chosen out of all the families of the world. It's a biological family. But the problem with a biological family is that you're not guaranteed that the next generation will know God. Just because you know God by grace, and knowing God is only by grace through faith, throughout all of the scriptures, just because one generation does, that doesn't mean that the whole nation will. It doesn't mean that the next generation will. So you've got this problem of a nation, a family, a family, but within that family, not everyone knows God, but only a subset of that family knows God. That's the way it's been. But God is saying, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to fix that such that the whole nation of Israel, that family, that big old family of Israel is going to know God. To what end? The exact same thing that God said in Genesis 12, 3, that then through that family, through that nation of Israel, all the families of the world will be blessed. So part of how God's going to fix it is through the new covenant. But another angle on this is what Malachi says at the end 
the very end of the Old Testament, as they come back from exile and they're still doing a lot of the same things and there's still a lot of the same problems. How does it end? God says this. There's, there's, there's implications that uh, in Malachi that, yeah, the new covenant's coming, the messenger of the covenant is coming. But notice how he ends in Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. The day of Yahweh is the day of judgment, but also salvation. Judgment for God's enemies, salvation for those who truly know him. And notice what Elijah is supposed to do. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And what's that saying? It's saying, hey, the generation gap, that's what we would call it, right? The generation gap that's caused this whole problem in these cycles. Uh, Elijah, this guy who's going to restore your hearts and restore the nation to prepare for the, way, uh, the, the, the day of the Lord, it's going to be a restoration of fathers looking towards their children and children looking towards their fathers. Because when that happens, then a lot of the cycles, the lot, a lot of what caused the difficulties in Israel will be solved. What do we conclude from all of this, right? We've, we've just seen highlights of what God is doing with this people of Israel in the Old Testament. What can we conclude from this? So just like we concluded some things from the foundations in Genesis 1 through 3, what can we add to that? What can we add to that? Well, one would be this. Fathers have a primary role in training their children. That's always, and we'll see it in the New Testament as well, the, the God lays the responsibility of leading the family and of training the next generation to fathers. Now, that in no way, we've obviously seen in Proverbs, moms have a role, a key role in that as well, a very indispensable role. Both are involved. But fathers have a primary role in training their children Parents have a role in training their children of passing on the faith to the next generation. What is the, child, the children's responsibility? Honoring their parents. That doesn't end when you're out of the house. Honor is more than obedience. It is obedience, but it's more than obedience. Uh, uh, it's honoring, which goes with. Even as you separate and form a new family, there's still an honoring of that previous generation. Okay, we're talking about training then, and we're talking about training the next generation, but... What's the content? What's the content of that training that you're supposed to give? Well, we see that in the Old Testament as well. We can go back to Genesis 18, 19. What is Abraham supposed to train his children in? The way of Yahweh, to do righteousness and justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 talks about it this way. You're to train your children in the commandments of God, but not just here's the law, here's the standard, meet the standard, no, it's never that way in the Old Testament. It's not just meet the standard so that God likes you. It's never the way in the Old Testament. It's God has been gracious to us. He has rescued us by grace. So keep his commands and love him. Keep his commands out of seeing his grace and loving him. That's what Deuteronomy 6 talks about. So yeah, you train in the commandments of God, but it's not just the commandments of God. It's the commandments of God 
motivated by God's grace and love. What else are you supposed to train children in? Psalm 78, 4 talks about uh, telling about the praises of Yahweh and his power and his wonders that he has done. So not just his standard, but his acts. What what has he done? How awesome is God? And passing that on to children. And Psalm 78 also talks about God's word more generally, the content of Revelation, the content of the scriptures. For the Israelites, it was the law, it was the prophets, all of that, but it would be instruction in God's word generally. Or flip over to Proverbs, what are you supposed to instruct children in? Wisdom. Wisdom based, not just worldly wisdom, just how do you get by in the world, how do you make a little bit more money, how do you have a little bit more comfortable life? No, that's never the goal of biblical wisdom. The goal of biblical wisdom is the fear, living in the fear of God, which means you know God and you're reverencing him rightly and then living wisely in the world. So that's the content of training, but what's the purpose of it all? Okay, you can give all this content of training that we talked about, and that's what the scriptures call families to, what's the purpose? The purpose, beautifully stated in Psalm 78. Go back there briefly. Psalm 78. What's the purpose of it all? You can train. Here's God's standard. Here's God's ways. Here's what God has done. God has been gracious. God has been kind. You can teach all of that content But what's the goal? And Psalm 78 tells us. Psalm 78, 7 and 8, again. So that, purpose statement, they should set their hope in God, a.k.a. faith. The training of God's standard to the next generation, it's never, ever, 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 ever supposed to be, okay, we just want a bunch of behavior. We want good behavior. And then if we have good behavior, you know, everyone will value your family and God will value your family if good behavior. No. It's God's standard and who God is to what end? For dependence, for faith, for hope. Because the reality is when you teach God's law and teach God's standard as a sinner, and everyone's a sinner, that you're going to realize, I can't. I can't keep God's standard. I can't keep it from the heart. I can't love him with all of my being. Well, what do you need to do when you cannot keep God's standard from the heart, even as you see how great and how awesome he is, like Psalm 78 is talking about, what's it all supposed to lead you to? Confidence, faith hope, that God is a God who has understands that we are a sinful people and that yet he has made a way to deal with that sin. He's got the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, and now we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ who became the substitute sacrifice for our sin, for our failures to Failures of God's standard in the law and failures of us to be the families that he's called us to be. Now, as we walk through that, God never changes the standard. God never changes the standard, whether you're talking about any of his commands or the commands of the family. But we all know we fall short of those commands. 
for his standard, and we fall short of his commands and uh, of the family. He doesn't adjust the standard. What does he do? He says, there's a sacrifice that can appease my wrath in your place that I have put forward to deal with your sin and your breaking of the standard and falling short of the family, being a husband or a wife or a child or a parent. And I've given a sacrifice in your place, and you need to trust me. You need to have confidence in me because I am the God who does great things. That's the purpose of all the training. That's the purpose of all the parental training. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. Not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. You trust God. You have faith that he can do and fulfill, uh, deal with your sin, that he can count you as righteous through his son, through repentance and faith, and then what? Then you obey by his power, by his grace. That's the goal in parenting, right, is faithfulness, uh, children who love and know God. Now, here's the other question. Can you guarantee, no matter how good of training you give to your children, can you guarantee that that child will put their confidence in God? No. You cannot save your child. Only God can. You are doing everything in your power to say, here's who God is. You need to put your trust in him and not in yourself and not in keeping God's standard because you can't. But you're ultimately, you can do all that you can. You can be faithful, and that's what God's going to judge you on. He's not going to judge you on, did your, um, did your child repent and know me? He's going to judge you on faithfulness, faithfulness and training and doing everything that you could and pointing them to God. And yet, even in that, we know we fall short. We fall short. And so some, you might be here and thinking, well, what if we fall short? What if I fall short? And we all do. I fall short as a husband. I fall short as a parent. What do I do? Because I want to do this, but I can't. What do you come back to? The gospel and grace. God, I know I've fallen short as a husband. I know I've fallen short as a wife. I know I've fallen short as a parent. And yet, I want to proclaim, I know your grace through Christ, through the gospel, that Jesus died in behalf of my sins, my failings as a parent, my failings as a child, my failings as a husband, my failings as a wife. Jesus died for that. And I can be counted as righteous in God's sight through faith and confidence in God. And then what? God only gives you that grace, but the grace to change, to pursue change, not for the other person. You can't change the other person. You can only change yourself, pursuing change in your role in the family and leaving the rest up to the Lord. And that's some of what we learn from the Old Testament. There's going to be more in the new as Jesus talks about the family, and there's going to be a shift as we look ahead to that, and that's what we will look at next week. But I want you to see this. Like I said this last week, I want you to leave this, seeing the family as, it's, it's not an afterthought, it's not a side issue in God's plan and God's program. It's a big deal, and it's a big deal to God. So the family should be noble in your mind, and you should hold it high, and you should strive to, to live in the way that God wants you to live. And yet, at the same time, like we just said, when there is failure, when there's falling short, what do you come back to? God's grace. Because that's what it's all about. Parenting, faith, trusting, and putting hope and confidence 
in God. Let's pray. God, we are a fallen people. We know you love the family. We know you have great plans for it in the world. And Lord, we know we've fallen short as husbands, as wives, as sons, as daughters, as parents, Lord God. And the only thing we can look to is your grace through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have paid for our sin on the cross, that you've lived the righteous life that we could not live. You've appeased the Father's wrath so that we can have a relationship with you so that we can put our confidence in you and that you've also given us grace to strive to uphold the standard you give. Lord, we pray for grace to do so this week for your honor and for your glory. Help us to pass on the faith to the next generation, knowing, Lord, we know we cannot change anyone's heart, but we know the means of grace that you've given in scriptures. You know, we know what you call us to. You call us to faithfulness. Help us to live faithfully this week by your grace, through your strength, for your honor and glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.